0: summer is here and we're as busy as ever at the dsr network our podcast schedule has expanded to include the dsr daily brief dsr foreign policy dsr politics the dsr spy show words matter foreign office with michael weiss next in foreign policy and the secret life of cookies to celebrate our expansion we're bringing you this special offer through the month of june membership is 50 percent off members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support.
1: This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the boats and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel.
2: These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello, and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into yet again another election cycle. And Norm, we've had a brief, uh, we we haven't done a, a pod in a while. Um, our incredible executive producer, has Chris Kottnor, has been taken away uh, on other things, and I'll leave it at that. But uh, you and I haven't had a chance to talk, so we've had several weeks of accumulating news. And so as each day would go along, I would think of all right, this, well, we'll talk about this on the pod. We'll talk about this on the pod. And lo and behold, a gift landed in our laps in the form of some Supreme Court rulings, as well as more, I'll say, shenanigans on behalf of the Supreme Court. Um, and maybe we can start there. But Norm, how have you been? And have you also been kind of keeping your accounting of all the different things that we could talk about on the podcast and, and your list of things to discuss?
1: I sure have. One we will not discuss is the NBA draft uh, last night, but uh, so at least there's some distraction. Um, But uh, there's a a whole lot out there, Kavita, and it's kind of overwhelming at this point, the news that's emerging. Uh, Although I do have to say, just as an aside, that if uh, you get your news from cable news, You would think there was only one story for the last uh, week and a half, uh, which was the saga of the submersible uh, submarine Titanic. Um, But the Supreme Court, you know, we're waiting, first of all, for a couple of big shoes to drop, the biggest being affirmative action. Right. Uh, But the, the one that came today was an interesting one and a somewhat surprising ruling. Not the ruling is so surprising, but that it was an eight to one decision. And normally on things that have any level of controversy or larger implications, they end up dividing completely along party lines. This one did not. It was basically a challenge brought by a number of states, mostly through their attorneys general, to uh, part of Biden's border policy. And the part of the policy was whether uh, in dealing with the 11 plus million uh, undocumented people in the country that the administration could use its executive and prosecutorial discretion to decide how to prioritize it because you couldn't take them all on. And so uh, the uh, regulations that the Biden administration used started, not surprisingly, with those who had criminal records and you know, was a sort of rational way to go. But I think basically in a kind of knee-jerk way to try and hit at Biden, um, these uh, states, red states, uh, decided to try and blow up his uh, border policies and force dramatic action. And of course, where did they go? the usual Texas district court uh, that uh, basically said, yeah, okay. And then it took a while, but made it to the Supreme Court, which ruled eight to one, that there was no standing for these attorneys general. Uh, There's going to be speculation about why. Um, You had uh, five uh, of the uh, uh, Republican justices decide to give a little bit of a break to Biden. And I think the larger speculation is they were looking ahead to whether this could be used to hamstring a Republican president on the border down the road. Uh, But it was still a victory. And uh, uh, the other interesting part of it, of course, is the one dissenter. We don't usually get eight to one decisions.
2: Yeah. I don't, when's the last time? I don't think we've even had one in my I memory of this.
1: one. We often will yeah. get seven to two, right. and the predictable two are Alito and Thomas, who stand out even from the radical right remaining members, uh, Kavanaugh, uh, 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 Barrett, uh, and Gorsuch, along mm. with pretty radical, right? John Roberts. But in this case, it was just Alito. And that tells us something. You know, my immediate reaction was when you've lost Clarence Thomas, dot, dot, dot.
2: You've lost, Uh, right.
1: But uh, Alito, of course, is one of the big news stories of the week. Mm -hmm.
2: It's Uh, well, so maybe, maybe we can offer a little bit of a, so here's my kind of, uh, not reading in a legal sense, but my lay reading of that eight to one, because, uh, you know, Amy Comey Barrett wrote her own concurring opinion with Gorsuch. So I think to exactly make your point, Norm, that uh, it wasn't as if, you know, the eight were all kind of in line for the same reasons. Um, But I think that it was, and then Brett Kavanaugh, I feel like this was the uh, kind of also Brett Kavanaugh show a little bit so that uh, it could kind of I don't know how the justices kind of decide. I know that there's been a description of how they decide what gets read and kind of what part of the opinion for the majority gets highlighted. But it's a pretty interesting kind of interpretation, as you state, to basically allow for potentially another Republican administration, because Kavanaugh noted that the Constitution gave the executive branch broad discretion to enforce the laws. And in the immigration context, Kavanaugh also stated that uh, it has been long been the case the executive branch did not have sufficient resources to arrest or deport all of the non-citizens, so the past five presidential administrations have had to make decisions about which immigration arrest to prioritize, and that complicated the process, Kavanaugh said, leaving courts without meaningful standards to assess executive branch decision-making, and that i think led to kind of the supreme court concluding that federal courts are not the proper forum to resolve claims that the executive branch should make more arrests or bring more prosecutions so i think i just think it's a very interesting because he he characterized the way the states kind of brought this forward as kind of a novel standing argument that and and warned that um it could have serious impl- implications that if the supreme court greenlit this Particular Texas Louisiana lawsuit that there would be future you know cases around the executive branch under enforcement of something else, um, be they gun laws. I thought it was interesting that some of that was called out. Norm, I'm sure you did too. And so it's and then in the concurring opinion, um, Gorsuch and uh, Gorsuch uh, took a different tact and said that Texas and Louisiana lack standing but the fatal flaw differently than the other justices, including kind of the more liberal leaning justices that the fatal flaw was that they would not benefit from a ruling in their favor. And then we can get to Alito because Alito then took stab at, um, you know, Kavanaugh's conception of presidential authority and kind of went back to naming some of the powers from the 17th century. It was, uh, it was actually to me, a fascinating read in history, which I thought was um very also telling. And I guess maybe I'd ask you, Norm, and maybe we can talk about Alito for a second. On one hand, Kavanaugh's opinion kind of took kind of pain to emphasize, like that standing issue of the of the federal government and United States versus texas and and that it was a narrow one and kind of limited this standing to challenge executive discretion. Um, so I don't know how that'll stand for some of the other conversations that are coming in front of the Supreme Court, but it also did kind of put out there, and I think Alito compared some of what Kavanaugh said, like I said, to some of the 17th century King James um, powers in the Revolution, which I, I frankly kind of found, uh, you know, very Sam Alito. However, I think that uh, the Kavanaugh opinion kind of noted that. A state standing argument can become more attenuated when a state contends that a federal law has produced only indirect effects, which was very supportive of the Biden administration. So I'm I I could I I felt a little like um you know whiplash from reading Kavanaugh's, you know, majority opinion and then trying to tease apart uh both Alito and then also Gorsuch's uh and Comey Barrett's concurring opinion, but again for different reasons that. Uh, Gorsuch and and Barrett sided with the uh, the remainder of the justices, and and I have no idea what this could mean for affirmative action. I, I don't know if you have any, if this gives you any more insights into either affirmative action, you know, student loans, all of the things that we've seen in front of the Supreme Court docket.
1: So um, last week, uh, when we had a surprising ruling uh, by John Roberts on, uh, redistricting and racial gerrymandering,
2: Mm -hmm. which
1: actually has big implications. It could open up several seats, uh, across several states that Democrats could win now that, uh, they could add a second, uh, majority minority district. Um, when I saw that decision, which goes completely against every decision that John Roberts has made, uh, to restrict voting, uh, and to declare that, uh, uh, there's no racism in, uh, in the voting process. And I thought immediately, okay, that's the end of affirmative action. Yeah. It was, uh, trying to put just a little bit of ballast in place, uh, so that there wouldn't be uh, a huge reaction there's still a little bit of sensitivity to uh, that Roberts has to the reputation of the Roberts court as going too far. Um, so if, if they do anything other than blow up affirmative action completely, I'll be surprised. And I don't think uh, this ruling um, gives some expansive interpretation of executive power. Most of the rulings that we've seen otherwise uh, go in the opposite direction, and I suspect we'll see that uh, on student loans as well. Um, you know, just one little aside before we get to Alito, which I also find fascinating, you know, on, on most of the decisions that are the big decisions, all six of these uh, right-wing judges are going to unite together. But we are seeing, as you pointed out in this case, um, a a number of instances where they're going to scrap with each other. And there was one uh, right before this involving Indian affairs and the Indian Welfare Act, Uh where we see that Neil Gorsuch for reasons that I'm sure have to do with his own personal experiences is a, a ardent defender of the rights of native Americans and a believer that our past uh, dealing with Native Americans has been horrific. And he wrote a blistering dissent to a decision uh, that basically pointed out the history and took his own conservative colleagues to task. So we're going to see some interesting dynamics, but the bigger picture, of course, is the opposite. Now, just a few things on Alito. And it's not just Alito, but We knew that this ProPublica expose was coming, and it was something that they had done an enormous amount of digging and research on to find out that he had taken this, I will call it lavish, fishing trip to Alaska, staying in a posh lodge, going up on a private jet, having all of the other perks that come with it, and not disclosing it. And his uh, host had a very significant case before the court uh, which Alito voted in his favor. And Alito, preemptively, because ProPublica, having put the piece together, wrote to him with some questions. He would not answer their questions. Instead, he went to his cronies and buddies at the Wall Street Journal editorial page and did something that every journalistic establishment outlet has condemned as a deep violation of journalistic ethics, which Paul Gigo and uh, Kimberly Strassel uh, (laughs) have uh, no uh, interest in whatsoever, any kind of ethical considerations, and and wrote this blistering uh, rejection, which was laughable, absolutely laughable. First, he twisted himself into knots to suggest that the law and uh, the other codes that say that uh, any gifts that you get from close friends don't include transportation, to try and say that transportation was okay, and then to say that traveling on the private jet was okay because the seat would have been vacant otherwise. And you know, we've seen all kinds of tweets and others, and uh, much of us had many of us had uh, that same reaction. So the next time I get on a flight and there's an empty first class seat, I could just go and sit in it for free because after all, it's there. But also the uh, regulations or the the rules and the norms, and there are no rules because there's no code of conduct for the Supreme Court. But the uh, the rules for federal judges and the law involving all public employees about gifts is about gifts that come from close relationships, from long-standing friendships. So uh, what uh, Sam Alito said was, "Well, I I barely knew this guy when he made the invitation, and then tried to turn around and say." Well, yeah, but you know it's okay because friends can do these kinds of things. So the lengths to which he's going to justify the unjustifiable, and all of his allies in the right-wing legal circuit um, who are saying, "Well, there's no quid pro quo," doesn't have to be a quid pro quo. And then we're starting to hear, "Well, look at what the liberal justices did. They got trips, many of them sponsored by universities, or uh, Sotomayor." Had a trip to New York to get an award that was paid for. They disclosed them. He did not disclose. And by every standard, it's actually a violation of the law. It is hard to imagine anybody with less of a judicial temperament, with lower standards, ethical standards, at any level of a court. He should not be a dog catcher. He shouldn't be a judge on the lowest court in a small town. He shouldn't be a justice of the peace, much less a justice on the Supreme Court.
2: So two questions for you, um, and I know you're passionate about this. So, um, number one, again, what can be done? Because as we've heard and you and I have discussed, whether it was Clarence Thomas, now uh, Sam Alito, or let's insert name of any justice to be candid here and, and some of the kind of questionable ethics that uh, I know that both sides left and right are kind of digging up and trying to figure out like who took what resort vacation from whom. And we've got a trail of, I, I agree, excellent reporting that tie Alito and Thomas to just, and I think they're only scratching the surface, by the way. Um, what, what will or can be done? Because I think that this still kind of gets through the, um, I think you had John Roberts on the record making the comments that, you know, the Supreme Court can do more to kind of adhere to, you know, higher ethical conduct. But at the end of the day, like, you know, hearings from Capitol Hill or kind of threats to impose some sort of code of ethics on the justices, I don't see much happening. Now, I just want to get your opinion to that. And then second, I'm sure you saw Dahlia Lithwick's piece in Slate. Which I don't want to undermine what's been done uh, from not just ethics violations, but I think what you're alluding to, which is, that not only do they have no business being a justice, but you know, no business, you know, c- taking my garbage out. And I will say, I think Dahlia brought up a really good point that you know this is a pay to play scheme on the highest level, where that fish that Alito was that holding in that picture in ProPublica wasn't the prize; Alito was the prize. And I think I would, I would agree with that and and wonder, so what are the repercussions of that and how much of that is really going on even beyond the Supreme Court? You know, if you think about district courts, federal courts, entire judicial system. So I'm just curious, your your two reactions, Norm. The first, what, if anything, will be done about this? Because I just don't see anything happening. And then number two, you know, do we need to broaden this and think about these kind of pay-to-play schemes in a broader context of way beyond the Supreme Court?
1: Uh, first, Dalia is as always on point, and you're absolutely right. This is a broader set of issues, and pretty much what we know is that Leonard Leo, um, okay. who has done more to undermine uh, the legitimacy of the judicial system than anybody, and now has uh, at least 1.6 billion dollars to go even further, has had a uh, a long game here, and the long game is to. Hook justices up with billionaires, Mm -hmm. give them all kinds of privileges and perks, bring them together with people who will uh, reinforce their views and uh, and and basically, you know, put them in a very difficult position if they try to do anything otherwise. Uh, So it's a dirty, dirty game. But the reality is nothing can be done about it. Because one, we have no moral compass anymore. If we, you know, if you go look back at Abe Fortas, whose offenses were like jaywalking compared to uh, uh, armed robbery uh, with these guys, um, the Chief Justice, who actually had uh, Earl Warren, Abe Fortas was an ally of his, and he knew that if Fortas went. He'd end up with a Nixon-appointed judge who would be a thorn in his side. But he was so offended that he stepped up. And people in both parties said, this is wrong. If we were in a world with a moral compass, um, Republicans would be standing up and saying, this cannot stand. And we'd have hearings, both parties contributing to them, and you'd almost force him to resign. And if not, you'd have impeachment proceedings beginning. And frankly, I've seen federal judges impeached and removed from office for a whole lot less than this. Uh, But you can brazen it out now. uh, And there's almost nothing that can be done. And of course, the other thing that could happen is John Roberts could act like uh, Earl Warren and stand up and say, this was wrong. And I publicly will chastise Sam Alito for taking trips that he should not have taken, not recusing himself when he should have, and not disclosing. And this is not allowable on my court. And therefore, I am going to put together a code of conduct and have some enforceable standards that will create at least some penalties for people who violate them. Instead, John Roberts is trying to protect his ass a little bit by saying, well, there's more we can do. But if you look at the letter that he sent to Congress, um, which basically was, well, we have the highest standards and here's what we adhere to, which Alito referred to in his piece, but they're pablum, they're meaningless. Now, the other thing that could be done, and I'm sure it's not going to happen, is he could be prosecuted because he violated a federal law which requires disclosure of gifts and also prohibits gifts of this size. Keep in mind that this empty plane seat, if uh, any federal official had done that, they would have either been required to reimburse at minimum for the first class seat price for these trips to Alaska, which would have been probably $10,000, or to pay for what the cost of the plane was to go to and from Alaska, which is $100,000. Now, Alito said, we stayed in this rundown place, and it was a tiny, uh, bare-bones room. And yeah, we had meals. They weren't all that great. And I can't remember if we had wine, but it wasn't a $1,000 bottle of wine. I would bet a great deal of money that it was a $900 bottle of wine. And we know from the pictures of this resort that it's a very posh, exclusive place. And I'm sure it was then, too. And these trips are not being taken to put them into rough conditions. So the lies from a justice, the uh, violation of ethical standards by going to the Wall Street Journal and writing an op-ed. And now we find yet another instance right after the Dobbs decision a group of religious extremists who had helped to bring the case and filed an amicus brief paid for his trip to Rome, a trip in which he gave a speech which was basically a victory dance, also completely a violation of any level of judicial temperament, saying with the Dobbs decision, we've got the votes, you don't, stuff it. So this man is just beyond the pale, and the only thing uh, that might be said about him is he's maybe a tad better than Clarence Thomas on this front.
2: This is a I I, I can't help but read because you're right. I think Dahlia does a nice job, um, obviously following the Supreme Court, but just in her writing around Alito, uh, she's she's done a I think also kind of pointed out just this kind of trifecta you know if you will of kind of corruption amongst the justices then the I'll call it the billionaire set that also has uh, lends and funds and subsidizes this corruption and then to your point norm i think the third part of that trifecta um the media to your wall street journal fox news like many of them who just keep providing what I would say is that obfuscation of uh, and I think they had Leonard Leo's you know, lengthy statement about how, you know, you think these are the only justices where this is happening. Like, you know, look at the woke billionaires and what they're funding like that's it's it's incredible that uh, it, it's incredible that in 2023 that this is what's happening. And I'll I'll kind of double down on this. It's not directly related to a leader of the Supreme Court. But this is exactly kind of the crosshairs that the administration is finding itself in around uh, First Amendment rights in general for things like misinformation and so much of there's there's so much around how um, constitutional rights are being interpreted, misinterpreted, and then to your point, kind of federal guidelines, which I would have thought I mean, Norm, recall the days still where I couldn't attend as a staff or something unless it's a widely attended event and cleared by ethics committees. And to think that like our highest justices, well, no problem, Norm, I can pick the empty seat and I can go to, you know, Rome and Italy and to Florence because there was my, my the airplane is a facility. That's not actually a trip. You know, I I think that this is where if I step back and I'm in... From my, you know, South Texas, my hometown of Texas, and I see all of this, it is no wonder that they're all hungry for somebody. I don't know if it's you know Ron, you know, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. They think that somehow that will be the alternative to kind of this corruption and and the way DC works. When the irony is, is Leonard Leo is the one that helped Ron DeSantis put his Supreme Court justices in for the state of Florida. So it all gets back to like the same two people. It's incredible to me. And it's not on the, you know, somehow these guys get away with it. It's it's amazing.
1: This is a new group of robber barons. And, uh, you know, I've read a lot about the Gilded Age uh, and the corruption that existed then. And there was a backlash to that that Teddy Roosevelt led that brought us some of the uh, good government reforms that we had uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, I don't see us coming back from that at any time in the near future. And there are many more billionaires and many more willing to use their money and their clout to maintain their role and their uh, and their power. I'll just tell again one small story. I had a very dear friend who was the chief judge of the Second Circuit in New York named Bob Katzman. Um, just a, a terrific person who tragically died of uh, pancreatic cancer uh, a bit more than a year ago. And I was, I, he'd been a friend for 30 years. I went up to New York uh, and I took him to lunch at a, you know, a little cafe. Um, and I paid the bill and he fought strenuously against that. Uh, the bill total was $50 for the two of us. And I said, Bob, I know the ethics standards. We are long and close and dear friends. I can buy you a, an inexpensive lunch. And he serves it. Okay. A week later, I got a check in the mail for $25 <laughs> because his ethical compass was such that he wasn't going to do something, even if it were right, Right. right. That, right. Um, that could have... Even for him, weigh on him even a little bit that he was deviating from what a judge is supposed to do. Most judges have that ethical compass. Sam Alito uh, and uh, Clarence Thomas don't. We also know that Neil Gorsuch was a part owner of a property in Colorado that had been on the market for two years and had not sold. And weeks after he became a justice, it magically got a buyer and sold at a nice price. We have uh, Amy Coney Barrett selling her house to the same uh, group that financed the trip uh, to Rome, if I'm not mistaken, for um, Alito. Uh, And uh, I don't know enough of the details of that to know if it was a a hands-off transaction and a reasonable price. But just... This was after she became a justice. Uh, you don't, even if they make an offer, if you have that ethical compass, you're going to say, "I'm sorry. I can't engage in a commercial transaction with an organization that is going to be filing multiple uh, Mikas briefs before a court that I'm going to have to decide on. And she didn't do that. Then we got Brett Kavanaugh hundreds of thousands of dollars in debts while he was a uh, on a public payroll and that magically disappeared when he was up for the supreme court and we still don't know who paid those uh, debts. So we just have a real problem of ethics and you know just finally Leonard Leo says look at the trips that the liberal justices have taken. I'll come back to it. They disclosed them all and fell within the guidelines of other judges with a code of conduct that does not apply to the court but applies to others. They violated no laws or codes. These were not disclosed. Clarence Thomas disclosed a $5,000 contribution to help pay the private tuition for the nephew he was raising as his own son. He did not disclose the $150,000 he got from Harlan Crow, which tells you he knew he was supposed to disclose and it was all a diversion so he wouldn't have to disclose the big payment. These are people who are brazen in their uh, approach to ethics and the law, and they're running the Supreme Court. God help us. Well,
2: they're not only running the Supreme Court, but uh, probably, again, I think we're scratching the surface, putting some dots together. Well, We'll leave our listeners with this. I I was trying to kind of trace. There's a nice Washington Post article that kind of documents, uh, just highlights the connections between DeSantis and, and Leo. And I think it's fascinating, Norm, just to kind of trace these things back. You and I have talked often about the power of the Federalist Society um, yeah. You know, which was what started, you know, 40 years ago, not that long ago, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that. Um, and DeSantis was at Harvard Law, joined the Federalist Society, and uh, was at Harvard Law when Leonard Leo, who was the Federalist Society's executive vice president at the time of you and I have talked, spoken about, spoke to, the, came to speak at Harvard Law and in, in sometime in the early 2000s, according to the Post, and that's when, back then, you know, a very young DeSantis, who had not even run for office at the time, but was a law student attending this Federalist Society talk, that's when he and Leo connected. And then they, re- of course, reconnected again when DeSantis was elected in Congress, and it continued on and on with Leo kind of donating to his campaign, documented in his leadership pack. And then, as soon as he became governor, brought who did he bring in to help him reappoint the high court in the state of Florida? So I. I think it's just there are days where I sometimes kind of think like, wow, it's it's not just, you know, the billionaire. Right. Or the uh, or um, this it's it's the Federalist Society and this kind of desire, this hatred of liberal ideology that united like these kind of iconoclastic figures in legal academia. Right. Think across our Harvard, Stanford, Yale, et cetera. And think about the impact it's had. It's just stunning. I've actually tried hard to think about an analogous version in in the Democratic side, and I can't. And maybe maybe people should, listeners should challenge us and tell us: Are there um, analogous organizations that have had this kind of influence? I can't think of one. And. There's a little part of me that's a little sad about that. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to, I would have loved to have seen um, Soros' Open Society or something like that with the same track record, but I, I don't have it. And so I, I leave our listeners. Had done that. what he's always
1: accused of do, been doing. I
2: know, I know. But I would lo- like I know this sounds insane, but I would love to say, yeah, you know, sure. I'd be happy to point to all these things that accomplish yeah. some of what I stand for but I can't. And it's because of the example you gave of your friend, right? Like there's a lot of, and look, no, no, if we will be the first people to tell you the Democrats are not perfect and have there been violations? Absolutely. Have there been exactly what you describe like the, and it's not about the dollars and, 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 uh, where they went. It's what you said about Thomas, like knowingly and you being utilized. And then kind of what Dahlia wrote, I think, very succinctly in slate, uh, that this is a pay to play scheme with, the justices is the prize, you know, and this is exactly what we're watching. So, on that note, uh, I want to thank our listeners. Hope and and share this with your friends. Let it start a dialogue. Please challenge us if uh, you can think of other examples, no matter what the ideology is of groups like the Federalist Society that have had this degree of outright concentrated influence in so many sectors of our day-to-day lives and hopefully this will help you get more than just voting out uh, out the door but getting some getting some support from any of the initiatives that I and and the, and the media like the ProPublica efforts to put some sunlight onto this and uh, and uh, thank you Norm and thanks to our incredible executive producer Chris Cotnoir and we'll see you next week.